You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. The AHA has begun increasing its coverage of ski mountaineering, and what a year to do it. This year saw the first descents at two 8,000-meter peaks, K2 and Lhotse. Our guest today is Hilary Nelson, who skied Lhotse in late September with Jim Morrison and the support of a very small team. At 8,516 meters, or just under 28,000 feet, Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain in the world, and skiers have been gunning for the first descent for more than a decade. I spoke to Hillary from her home in Telluride, Colorado. I hope you enjoy it. Hillary, welcome to The Cutting Edge. When did you first dream of skiing Lhotse? Gosh, I probably first dreamt of skiing Lhotse um, when probably back in 2007. I think that was the year Jamie Laidlaw first made his attempt. And I started reading up on it, and I had just climbed and skied my first 8,000-meter peak in 2005 and was, you know, my my curiosity was piqued about other um, high-altitude ski descents, and Lhotse stood out to me. So it's been on my mind for a long time. You've climbed Lhotse before, right? Yes, I climbed Lhotse in the spring of 2012. That was the same year you climbed Everest. Yeah, and um, so I climbed them back-to-back with my climbing partner at the time, Chris Erickson, and he had also tried to ski Lhotse the year before. And so when we went into this Everest expedition in 2012, we brought our skis hoping that, you know, we might be able to um, get a permit also for Lhotse and either ski Everest or ski Lhotse or do some combination of the two, um, and pretty early on in that particular season, we realized there was absolutely no snow, so skiing was not an option, but we did end up linking Everest and Lhotse climbing. And how many attempts have there been to ski Lhotse? You know, I'm not totally sure, but uh, I'm guessing there's been at least a dozen, Oh wow! I would say. How many? Yeah, maybe, maybe a few less, but I know... Jamie Layla tried a couple times, uh, Chris Erickson, Willie Benegas, and uh, his climbing partner tried last this last spring. So there's been a few tries. And is everybody trying to ski the Lhotse couloir? Is that really the only feasible line? Off of Lhotse, that is the only feasible line. And I mean, it's, and that's, that's what's so attractive about it as well, is that it's such an obvious iconic ski line 
just in terms of its shape and um, it's it's just a really well-defined couloir that then spills out onto the Lotse face in a very, very direct fall line descent. Had other teams attempted to ski Lotse in the fall? And, and what was behind your decision to go in the fall? Was that looking for post-monsoon snow or were there other factors? To the best of my knowledge, no one had tried it to date in the fall. And the reason for making that decision early on was because, yes, we were going for post-monsoonal snow. And secondly, was in the hopes of not having any other climbers. Um, Everest and Lotse share the same ascent route of the Lotse face. And obviously, if you're skiing something that direct above the Lotse face, it would be impossible to not kick down avalanches, sloughs, uh, big pieces of wind slab, whatever it is that would make anybody coming up, it would make it really dangerous. So you would have knocked stuff straight down onto other parties? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. You have nobody else on the mountain in the fall, but at the same time, that causes problems, right? I mean, you have to do all the work. <sighs> You're going through the Kumbu Icefall, and there's a, normally a big group of people helping to prepare the route, but you have yeah. this very small team. How did you manage it on your own? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> we had, I mean, we had a lot of luck. I mean, the, the Lotse, the, or the, the Kumbu Icefall is like the key to the whole route. And in the spring season, the Icefall doctors are like a team of 10 Sherpa that show up weeks before anyone else arrives. And they, they spend a ton of time, you know, perfecting the route and packing it in and putting all the ladders in place. And... Um, we basically did the whole climb starting at base camp in a little, a little under three weeks. Wow. So we had two icefall doctors, five Sherpa, and then us four climbers. And the Sherpa helped the icefall doctors. We had a really fast route and we were able to put it in from base camp to camp one at about 19,000 feet. And four days, and that included one rest day. Just to give you an idea of how fortunate we were, from the entire icefall to Camp One, there was only one ladder put in, whereas in a typical spring season, there's upwards of 20 to 30 ladders. Wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. Now, I I'm getting ahead of myself, but you couldn't ski back down through the icefall, could you? I mean, we tried for <laughs> about 20 minutes, <laughs> and it was so treacherous. Um, it was so gnarly because our, our last pass up the icefall there, it actually snowed a lot at that elevation. And, um, by the time we came back down, uh, a week, 10 days later, um, it had avalanched. And so there was all this frozen, you know, boulder sized debris in the top several hundred feet and it was impossible to ski. So we walked down. So once you're up on the mountain, it was you and Jim and um, two photographers, right? Yep. And what were their names? <laughs> uh, Nick Kalish and Dutch Simpson. And they were amazing. Those guys had never been above like 21,000 feet, and this was all new to them, and they, they, were, they crushed it. Right. So you have those guys in the really small Sherpa team. 
I mean, it must be amazing to be up in that place more or less all alone, especially since you were there in the really busy spring season. Right. I mean, I think I think I'm safe in saying that 2012 was one of the busiest spring seasons on record. And, um, you know, at any time there were a thousand people at base camp and, you know, 300 people at camp two and so on. It's surreal. Like it's hard to even put into words what it was like to be there. Our first two nights at camp two, it was just the four of us. So we went there ahead of the Sherpa and, um, it was, it was totally amazing, but it was also kind of freaky at the same time because I, I don't know, I had this expectation of the safety net that comes with climbing Everest and that just wasn't there. And, right. um, it's so big. It's such a impressive, massive piece of geography and to experience it with such a small team was, yeah, it was incredible and, and scary at the same time. Intimidating maybe is a better word. Yeah, sure. And you probably had to do more work too. Yeah. Were you guys working alongside the Sherpa in the ice fall, for example? I mean, we, uh, Jim and I especially had uh, the best of intentions in helping the Sherpa and the ice fall doctors. And we carried, you know, coils of rope. We carried up as much, as many um, uh, snow stakes and stuff as we could. But I mean, those guys are so strong <laughs> that uh, uh, they more often than not crushed us. So we were able to help break trail a few times through that, that second pass when the snow was so deep. Um, and the, the thing we did the most was just carry all of our own gear. So, you know, we had all our own food, our tents, our skis. And then we worked really hard, especially Jim, before even leaving the U.S. to plan in such a way that we had the minimal amount of gear. So we weren't setting up a lavish Camp 2 we skipped a high camp. We skipped camp four altogether. Uh, we used single wall tents. Huh. Really? Um, we only we didn't we didn't have repetitive gear above camp two, so we only had you know one set of sleeping bags, one set of thermos. So we carried those up and down with us. Um, you know, it's it's funny. It, it wasn't until I started researching for this interview that I realized that you guys were a couple. Ha, I mean, you are yeah. a couple, right? I'm not putting my yeah, foot in no, my we mouth. Are. No, you're not. We're a couple. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's uh, it's really impressive to me that you can uh, do something so stressful in such a small group uh, as a couple. You must work really well together. Yeah, I mean, we have our moments, but we we climb. We have a very similar. Um, climbing style and just a very similar approach to what we want to accomplish. It's, it's been, it's been awesome. The funny thing is that Jim is a, a very much a gentleman. And so I have to remind him when we're climbing that, um, I am a climber and he has to let me carry my own things and he has to let me break trail. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that, that's probably like our, our, biggest headbutting. Um, but apart, apart from that, um, we, we climb well together. We really like the, 
it's amazing for me to just have a partner that you don't have to converse with, that you can read each other's physical actions and emotions and um, really simplify things working towards this sort of common goal. Right. How long were you on the mountain before Summit Day? Well, so we had our puja ceremony on September 11th. And I'm sure, as you know, you can't do anything on the mountain prior to that. And then we summited on the 30th of September. There was not a lot of time for rest. We were like moving the whole time. Right. Hustling. Did you do uh, rotations? How, how did you manage the acclimatization on such a tight time frame? So, so we went up through the icefall the first time, slept one night at camp two, two nights at one night at camp one, two nights at camp two, and then back down to base camp. And then we only had four days at base camp before we did our final climb through the icefall headed for the summit. Wow. Um, it was pretty, it was fast and furious. Um, we had, I think three days before we spent the night at camp three at almost 24,000 feet. Um, we made sure to push camp three as high up the Lotse face as we could so that we would have a shorter summit day. Um, and then when we came down from camp three, we got the weather report that was like, basically, you know, this was the 27th of September. And the weather report was like, if you don't summit on the 30th of September, you're basically not going to summit. Right. right. So, so the pressure was on. The pressure was on. Yes. And what were the big question marks about the route? Not so much about climbing it, but skiing, since that was your main goal. Um, the biggest, well, if you can imagine, I, I was, you know, the only one of the four of us that had been in the Lotte Coir. And when I was in it, it was all rock, like 90% rock. Underfoot? Underfoot. That's how bare it was. So um, my biggest concerns were with the choke in the Kawar itself, which is even though maybe it's only 100 feet long, um, in 2012 when I climbed it, it was 60 centimeters wide. <laughs> so I figured we would have to repel that. And then the, the summit pyramid is really steep, and it has kind of a 20-foot vertical cliff in it. And then the rest of it is easily 60 degrees, which, you know, at high elevation, it's at any elevation, it's tough to ski 60 degrees. So, again, I kind of thought we would be um, finagling the descent off the top with um, rappels or down climbing or something. And I understand there's also a big Bergschrund as well. Yeah, so that... Um, that is often a pretty vertical ice climb to get over the Bergschrund, anywhere from 20 to 40 feet long. So um, we knew pretty early on, though, um, uh, on our second rotation, Jim and I were the first ones to go up to the Bergschrund and check it out. And uh, it was filled in. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so you knew you could just ski so, right over that. We knew we could ski right over that. I mean, it took, you, you had to, you know, you had to nail it in just the right spot, but we totally knew you could ski right over it. All right. So on the big day, September 30th, 
what time did you start? How, how far did you have to go? How long did it take to get to the top? Um, we started at 1230 because it's bad luck, I think, for the Sherpa to wake up at midnight. You can't do anything at midnight. So we got up at 1230. Um, and then we, uh, I think we were out of our tents by 2 a.m. And we had about a 4,300-foot ascent, which is a lot when you're talking about, you know, between 23,000 feet and 28,000 feet. And how does that break down? How much is in the couloir? How much is on the Lhotse face? Give us a picture of the descent. So from... From the summit all the way down to Camp 2, the breakdown is about 1,800 feet in the Lhotse Kuwar, and then probably 4,200 feet on the Lhotse face, and then another 1,000 feet below the Bergschrund. Wow. Back to Camp 2. So sort of three ski resorts stacked on top of each other. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. I mean, and everything above the Bergschrund, it probably averages 48 to 50 degrees. So it's um, pretty steep. Very consistent and um, definitely not somewhere you want to fall. Right. Yeah. Now, there were fixed ropes, right? Was that for your benefit or for the camera crew? What was the decision making there? That that was for mostly for, I mean, climbing up that degree of steepness, 48 to 55 degrees, isn't all that difficult but having those fixed lines in just adds a massive level of security and it also gives you a lot better chance of taking real positive rests etc but obviously for skiing down we didn't use the fixed lines and we didn't need them but for the sherpa and the camera guys descending it was pretty essential and so for them to come down for them to come down it just allows them to come down i mean 20 times faster than they would if they weren't in place. So um, what we did was actually the, the Sherpa split up and three of the Sherpa went up from Camp 3 the day before we summited. And they put in as much fixed line as they had, which, which was just a couple hundred feet shy of the summit. And then um, one of them summited uh, purely because he hadn't summited before. It was actually pretty awesome. We were freaking out because it was getting really late and they were, we were at camp three and they were still pushing up and two of them had summited and, and didn't care about the summit, let's say, but the third guy was like really wanted to summit. And so he summited at like six o'clock at night wow. and then it only took him, they were back at camp by 8 PM. So that's how much like those ropes help. Yeah. But then of course, this is where having, you know, hundreds of people and other teams climbing is really beneficial because the route gets so stamped in. Um, by the time we woke up and started our climb, only, you know, six hours later, the whole route was like filled in already just from wind. Wow. Windblown snow. Windblown snow. Yeah. And then were you guys carrying your own skis? How, how much help did you have on the way up? So we were carrying our own skis and we did the whole climb from base camp in our ski boots in an effort, again, to have as little superfluous gear as possible. Um, Jim and I made a valiant effort to do it without oxygen. So um, 
the the two Sherpa that climbed with the four of us on the summit day carried an extra bottle of oxygen for Jim and I, which was amazing of them. And then there were a couple extra bottles on the route for for the Sherpa and for Dutch and Nick as well. So we made it, Jim and I made it to about 8,200 meters without oxygen. And that coincided with where the route shifted from the Lotse face to the Kuar. So, and it changed. so what, like 2,000 feet below the top? Yeah, like about eight, yeah, 1,800 feet, 2,000 feet below the top. And um, just the, the snow changed, basically. And um, we went from like west-facing to north-facing. And all of a sudden, it was like breakable crust and post-holing up to our knees. And um, it was, you know, almost noon and... Uh, we decided that skiing was our primary focus. And so we put on oxygen at that point and that definitely helped us keep up, re-energize a bit. Um, and then we summited at about 1.30. So 2 a.m. to 1.30 was the climb. Wow. And did you use pretty much the same equipment that you use at home in Colorado, or did you make modifications or special choices? I, I'm especially interested in how you kept your feet warm in ski boots all day. So the boots this trip were a big risk for me. We opted for like real ski boots. And granted, they're, they're these Technica Zero-G boots, and they're super light. They're lighter than like a two-buckle Dinafit boot, but they're four buckles, and they're really hard to get your foot in and out of when it's cold, and it was, you know, negative 20 degrees that morning. We the, the only thing I had to keep my feet warm, I was totally depending on, the, on heated socks, and it worked. Um, you know, I went through two sets of batteries on each side by the time I was down, and for sure my feet were cold, but you know, nothing more than a little frost nip, um, and nothing that was at all worrisome for either Jim or I, which, you know, if your feet go, that's one of the first things that'll make me turn around. So it was definitely a risk. And, uh, you know, we had over boots over the boots for the climb up. That makes a huge difference, but we pulled those at the summit, um, when we put our skis on. And what about in your hands? Are you skiing with two poles, a self-arrest grip, carrying an ice axe in one hand? What's the setup? I mean, we really fully committed to to lightness and scarcity of gear. So um, I had these super light MSR poles and no whip it, no kind of, a lot of times you can have an ice axe integrated into your ski pole, um, but they're heavy. So we didn't take those. I just took one really lightweight, short ice axe, and then regular poles. And so, um, you know, I didn't even have the axe out when I was skiing down. And partly that's because we climbed up what we were skiing down and just, I just didn't feel we needed it. The conditions were that good. Okay. So 12 hours up more or less. How long did you stay on top and what did you have to do on top to prepare for the descent? We were on top for probably about 45 minutes and 
I mean, the miracle of modern technology in our weather forecast, which said, you know, that the, the jet stream was coming and basically it, in the early afternoon on the 30th of September, the winds were going to start picking up to, you know, 40 to 50 miles per hour. And literally like clockwork at like 2.30, the wind started picking up. I mean, and it started, you're feeling gusts that were like 30 to 40 kilometers an hour. And that was when we were like, we, it's time to go down. Right. So we'd been up there for 45 minutes and, um, you know, we were, we, did, we were pulling our oxygen masks on and off. And honestly, the, the summit was the only little bit of sun we had for most of the climb because it is west and north facing. Um, so we were soaking up the sun up there. And then with the wind, the temperature dropped and um, we pulled our skis off our packs, um, stripped our overboots off. And the Sherpas, uh, uh, I think Tashi Sherpa took our overboots for us they were so they were staring at us like we were absolutely from mars <laughs> like what are you guys doing like um um and that summit pyramid is so steep so right i mean i i read uh, that it's uh you were wallowing through chest deep snow and have to do some rock moves i mean uh, yeah. how, how steep is it up there most of that 20 foot cliff from 2012 was buried but it was buried in sugar snow so you were kind of like taking two steps forward, one step back, and and it was like digging a trench up and over that cliff and then through to the summit. But when you turn around and you put skis on, all of a sudden that horrible wallowing sugar snow becomes this amazing um, sort of catch for your skis. So you can actually ski something that steep because every turn you sink into this snow that catches you in a way. Right. Right. But it was perfect because if it had been firm, I don't think we could have skied it. So you're standing on top, you click into your skis. Were you, um, freaking out? We were totally freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. That's my question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were freaking out. I mean, I don't know, Dougal, it was like, just a beautiful day. The sun, the wind wasn't blowing too strong yet. The sun was out. You're looking straight across at Mount Everest, which didn't have a single soul on it. It was absolutely pristine. Um, we knew we could ski through the choke at that point. Um, I don't know. It was it was definitely a, an all time high in a in a 20 year career of ski mountaineering. But were you scared? Yeah, I was totally scared. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, the the two of you, you and Jim, handled the top a little differently. Uh, Jim went first, right? We did. Can you yep. just uh, describe how you each did it and what went into those decisions? So he went first, um, and he skied on the, the skier's right side, so closer to Everest, and really slow, made really calculated turns. And if, when it's that steep, each turn, you, you drop like 20 feet in between your turns. So it only took, you know, the, the, the summit pyramids, maybe 100, 100 feet. So it only took him a couple turns. And then he actually kind of jumped over the cliff and made one big sweeping turn and, and caught an edge and, and fell. But wow. it was way less steep at that point. So he just kind of 
did a somersault and rolled to a stop and was fine. Well, man, I mean, did you think he was going <laughs> to, you know, go all the way? No, because that, that was sort of another good part of that summit pyramid is right after the summit period, you probably have the least steep part of the entire ski. I see. It kind of makes this hourglass and it, it mellows out to probably 40 degrees. Okay. Okay. So now it's your turn. And then it's my turn. And I'd kind of just seen him like do his thing. And, and, and Jim's like a big, strong skier guy. And I don't know, I was just nervous. And so I arm wrapped to the top of the cliff, which was maybe 40 feet down. And then I just kind of did a kick turn. Wait, so an arm wrap. So there's a fixed rope there or somebody's belaying the rope? Yeah, like I'm not I'm not in with a rappel device or anything like that. It's just I'm totally facing down the hill. I just have my right arm kind of up behind me with one with the rope wrapped around it once and it just controls your your slide a little bit. So, Jim skied it free. I arm wrapped a little bit down kind of to the top of that super scrappy little cliff. And then from there I kick turned around it, got down below the cliff and then started skiing. So then there's some easier skiing for a bit, and then you enter the couloir proper. How far down is the choke? Uh, probably about 800 feet down. It really rolls and gets super steep as you come into that choke. So And, and how wide was it with the autumn snow? I mean, it was probably 175 centimeters. So I <laughs> so was... one ski length totally exactly my my ski length it was a little short for Jim skis so he was you know kind of tip to tailing on the rocks a little bit as was I because you're you're still we weren't turning through that point we side slipped through there because the snow was really funky yeah but once we you know side slipped through the narrowest portion the turns above it and below it were were fine you just had to be really careful because it was incredibly flat light and you can't read the different snow conditions when you can't see well. So, um, you know, we really approached that section very slow. We just leapfrogged each other for most of it. Um, so I would go first and stop, and then he'd get to me, and then he would go. And we just did that for most of the 1,800 feet of the core. And when you guys are skiing down through here, are you stopping to talk to each other or are you exclaiming how great it is or are you just trying to get the job done? I think the latter. We were definitely more focused on getting the job done. It was a big undertaking and the, the, the couloir was just, you know, the upper fifth of the whole face. So we really knew we just needed to get through the, the couloir safely and in a timely manner so that we would have um, the best conditions on the Lotse face because that was west facing and it was in full sun but the longer we took getting down that um, the more the sun would disappear and then you'd get refreeze and it'd be more icy and more difficult. I see and the crux of the Lotse face is right at the bottom right? Yeah so the yeah exactly like the the Lotse face and it's massive I mean it's half a mile wide and it 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 rolls from anywhere maybe 40 to 42 degrees and then towards the bottom it's it's 50 degrees maybe even a little steeper so um 
you know, of course that's your most, the most dangerous part and you're tired and it's getting late and all of that. So we are trying to keep that in focus. And uh, are you still using oxygen at this point? Did you use oxygen for the descent? Yeah. Um, we, we used it those last couple hours on the ascent. And then I, I took the oxygen off at camp three. On the way down. On the way down. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I heard another interview with you and Jim where you described just gasping and not being able to do more than three turns in a row without stopping. Oh, yeah. uh, but you're, you know, you're breathing oxygen. Isn't uh, it helping yeah. or is, uh, you know, breathing through the mask not enough to, uh, to make up for the exertion? Yeah. Uh, I think even the mask, even though it's delivering oxygen, it still limits how much you can take in just based on the, the size of the mask, et cetera. And, um, the exertion of skiing that those kinds of conditions at that altitude and, and having already climbed for 12 hours and all the days leading up to even being in that position had, had obviously taken a toll on us. And so, you know, through the couloir, we were, we were making three, four, maybe five turns at a time. And, um, and then, you know, we'd, we'd be bent over, I'd be leaning on my poles, trying to catch my breath. Um, I mean, we were, we were pretty jovial at this point. I mean, we were, we were laughing a lot. We were, it was, I mean, I've been a skier my whole life and alpine climbing I've learned just as an adult. And so for, for both of us to, to put all this climbing into it, once we put our skis on, it's like, I mean, I can ski with more grace than I can walk down a sidewalk. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so it's kind of like stepping into my own skin and, and, and having that comfort level of being on skis versus walking down was a huge relief to both of us. And so uh, our mood was much lighter once we, just started, once we started down, even though that was probably when we were at the most risk for falling or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, so, so even though we were sucking wind and the snow wasn't ideal, we were still um, able to make light of it and enjoy it. That's great. And so where did you sort of declare the end of the descent? Was, was it wherever you stopped that day? Yeah, we, yeah. When you get to camp two, you run out of snow. So we basically declared the, the end of the ski descent when we popped out of our skis and walked across the, the rocky moraine back to Camp 2. Okay, and uh, so what time did you get back to Camp 2? Uh, we got back about 6 p.m. Right. So it was so. dark. It was just getting dark. Um, and then Dutch and Nick, who had to walk down, <laughs> uh, they, they got back a few hours after us. Like it took, a, it was a long yeah. time walking down. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the style of the descent. Uh, you, you know, you use fixed ropes and you decided to use oxygen partway up and you had a little help from that arm wrap at the top. So, you know, where does, where does it fall for you in terms of style? Do you feel like there's any sort of asterisk on the descent or, um, or, or, or how do you feel about it? I think because I went into it with such low expectations, assuming we were going to use oxygen from camp three, assuming we were going to have at least three repels in the route, I was really excited 
about our style. And a lot of that came from luck. I mean, if we'd had to do three repels, I still would have done three repels. You can put asterisks next to it if you want, but that just gives the next attempt a bar that they can break. <laughs> right. And they can push it harder and they can try and do it without oxygen or without Sherpa assistance or um, without fixed lines. So I'm really proud of our style. I'm, I'm happy we carried all our own personal gear. We carried our skis. We put our skis on, you know, with my hand resting on the summit. Um, and I'm a little bummed I did the arm wrap off the top, to be honest. But in that moment, um, it was what I could do. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with it. I... I, I I am so, I can't, I'm so still just like pinching myself that we were the only team in the whole Western Coombe. And, and that is something so incredibly special to me that um, even if we didn't ski, that was so worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now you, uh, if I'm not mistaken, right before you left for Nepal, you got a new job. You took over from Conrad Anchor yeah. as the uh, captain of the uh, North Face climbing team. I think that's what it's called. And yeah. uh, what does that involve? What's What does that mean? What, what... Oh my God, that was like the pressure to be successful. Jeez. I mean, the athlete <laughs> captain can't fail to ski Lotse. Um, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I still don't know at what point I went from being like the youngest climber on an expedition to the oldest climber on an expedition. <laughs> that that puts me in this place of kind of being a mentor. And, I, you know, I'm starting to realize I do have a lot of experience with not just climbing and skiing, but putting expeditions together, team dynamics, um, finding funding, uh, deciding whether or not to have a family and stay a a climber. And I'm in my 40s (laughs) and uh, my mid-40s to boot. And I I think because of the particular sport, the particular path I've gone down, I really feel I'm at my strongest. And it's not necessarily physically, but there's such a huge mental component to these long endurance challenges that I feel really strong. So yes, I 100% want to continue with expeditions and, and kind of tackling some things that have been in my heart, on my mind for many years. Um, but I also see it as a transition to, uh, to sharing what I've spent two decades doing and, and, and helping the next generation that's coming in to to beat our record on Lotse, to beat things that we've done and my contemporaries have done, and also to have just a healthier approach to it and mentors, role models to, to fall back on too. That's great. And that's a great place to wrap up. Congratulations on the uh, ski and the expedition, and uh, thanks for sharing the story with us. Thanks. Thanks, Dougal. Yeah, that was good. Thanks, as always, to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for making this show possible. On behalf of Hilleberg and all the people involved with The Cutting Edge, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbing and a very happy new year.